I'm G. Scott, and this is Leaving a Legacy with Amanda Knox. Nobody lives forever, but your legacy does. Follow me, G. Scott, on this journey to discover how some of our most influential public figures plan to leave their legacy on this world. Super excited to be joined by my friend, exoneree, writer, author of a New York bestseller, Waiting to be Heard, and also co-host with her husband, Chris, with Lambrinth's podcast, Amanda Knox joins us. Amanda, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, G. It's been a while. It, it has been a while. I want, congratulations are, are, are kind of in order, not just with your marriage to Chris, you guys are married, that's awesome, but am I hearing and understanding that you're expecting the new baby? That is correct. We finally made it. Yeah, we, um, we documented our whole infertility journey, um, but the the nice thing about that infertility journey on um, our podcast labyrinths is that it does have a happy ending. So we uh, we're going to be a family. You know, I I also understand before, and I'm so sorry that you had shared publicly of your miscarriage, and it happened before. I have a friend here at work by the name of Dave Grosby, and he talks about his 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 walk with Parkinson's that's going on. And one of the things that he calls it, he calls it living out loud. What gives you the courage to live out loud, to tell your story of a miscarriage? Uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, after having my entire life um, and privacy really um, not just exposed uh, in, you know, in the courtroom and in the media, um, I've I've grown accustomed to people um, invading my privacy and it's a kind of reaction to be proactive about how I am telling my own story and what about my intimate life I decide to share. So it is a little bit a reclaiming of my own intimacy and privacy by being the one to tell it. If it's going to be told no matter what I do, I might as well be the one to tell it in the way that I want to. Um, But furthermore, it's about trying to lift the veil of what is typically seen to be this very personal private experience that honestly leaves people feeling very isolated and in the dark about the realities of everyone's infertility journey or fertility journey that in many cases involves some level of infertility along the way. And when I reached out on social media talking to or asking other people to tell me about their experiences of infertility, I was shocked by how many responded Um, and people who have had devastating journeys that they never expected. Like it's one of those things that parenthood you think, oh, well, I have parents. I'll be a parent. Like it's one of those things we sort of take for granted. And the fact that so many people on their journey to become parents have to go through these deeply existential crises um, was a shock to me. And it definitely made me think, you know what? There's some kind of societal taboo that I just need to break by being really candid and vulnerable about my own experience and also to help share the stories of others who have gone through it as well. 
Well, I'll stay on that topic, and I'm glad you brought that up, and you're right. There are a lot of families out there that are dealing with what you're talking about, and I'll stay on that because right now, Amanda, we are living in a social media time where it's a new world, where we are all one tweet away from this and that and all the conversations. How will you approach social media with your child when they reach that age? That is an excellent question, G. And actually, you are the first person to ask me that because um, it is something that I have been thinking about a lot um, and I have deep concerns about. I think that um, millennial parents tend to, from what I've seen on social media, be very, very open um, with, you know, every day they're posting videos and pictures of their kids. And after everything that I've been through um, and understanding how my own life has been exploited through social media by different media, tabloids, those kinds of things that gain automatic access to your life and strip it out of its context for their own narrative making, um, I am very, very loath to um, expose my my future children to that kind of uh, treatment. I think a lot of us take for granted that social media is just like a family photo album that we just conveniently share with everyone that we love and care about, but we're not actually thinking about how much we are sharing it with more than just the people who love us and care for us. We're sharing it with everyone. And whether or not that is for the benefit of the kid, I am... I am more skeptical. So what I'm asking myself today is not only will I or will I not share photos and videos of my future children, but how are my future children going to be defined by their proximity to me, their association with me? And are they going to carry a kind of shadow burden of being associated with a crime that they had nothing to do with. Like if I am associated with a crime that I had nothing to do with, are they going to be drawn into the Amanda Knox scandal mongering that I've had to live with for the past, you know, over a decade? And how do I protect my children from that? It's a question that I don't really have a good answer to because this is not something that our society is really thinking about yet. I feel like I'm a little bit Due to the extreme circumstances that I went through um, at the a little bit the forefront, thinking about what are the consequences of all the sharing that we are doing um, and trying to think about how to have a more um, not like to live in fear, but to have a more conscious, mindful association and communication with the broader digital world. I have a confession. <clears throat> you and I have known each other for about four years now. And over that time, I've got to learn, if you will, because you and I have talked a few times. I've interviewed you a few times. But more importantly, I've got to see your work. And so I've learned a lot more about you through your work. But I have to confess something so that we can move forward with this next part of the conversation. And my confession is this. Um, when I first met you, and even though I know today 
you were wrongfully convicted. You were exonerated. You spent four years in an Italian prison and you should not have, right? I want to be very clear. This is called the Amanda Knox story or saga when it shouldn't be your name. Rudy Gooday is the one that did it. Now, with that being said, I thought you were guilty. I 100% thought you were guilty. And it was the first time that I met you is that something didn't add up. But here's why I'm bringing that up. I'm bringing that up because I'm embarrassed to admit that I fell prey to what society falls prey to is when we first hear the first account of a story, most of us never go and revisit to find out more. So I'm going to admit that story with that. How do we be better about this? Hmm. Um, well, first of all, thank you for sharing that with me. I, I, you know, we have a really great relationship at this point. And so I feel like that probably really sucked to live with for the last four years that we've known each other. No, 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 no. I, I didn't wait, 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 to be clear. Wait, 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 to be clear. This didn't last for four years. I'm just telling you that when I met you, I thought that, and it, it was because I met you that made me go and relook for myself. That's what I'm saying. And so for all these years, I've just been embarrassed to admit it to you. Well, that's what I mean, um, that even just carrying that embarrassment as we like hang out and talk and you interview me and all of that, like I... I imagine the embarrassment that you were feeling, and I'm so sorry um, because it's honestly not your fault, um, really, that you had that false impression of me. Um, everything that was out there about me in the world, first impressions really matter. And if the first time you ever hear about me, it's, you know, murder girl, that's going to leave an impression in your mind. And if you don't think to question what has been given to you by a, a source of authority that you trust, then of course you're going to have a, a wrong impression of me. So if anything, I have a, a great deal of sympathy for you um, because if I were in your position, I probably would have done the same thing. I would have, you know, just thought, oh yeah, I guess they had something to do with the murder. Um, I can't say that before this experience, I ever gave true crime much thought. Um, I was a poetry kid, a, a, a yoga kid. I wasn't doing, you know, reading about murders online or anything like that. And if it had sort of just come into my attention in the ether, I wouldn't have looked deeper into it either because it's, you know, why would I? Um, there's so much that's grabbing for our attention these days that that first impression, that first headline is just going to sort of wash over us, sink in, and then you move on with your life with a wrong impression about someone. So if anything, I think that what that goes to show is that we are all constantly consciously and subconsciously absorbing judgments about other human beings without ever thinking about it, without ever being mindful about where our judgments are coming from. And so if that is the case, then we should approach everything that we're exposing to ourselves or ourselves to. And today we're exposing ourselves to things in, in seconds, like a tweet will pass by and you think, oh, well, if I only looked at it for half a second, it's not going to leave an impression on me. Well, maybe it is. And maybe these are things that instead of just 
casually absorbing what we hear in the world. If we are going to really start forming opinions about things, we should do the due diligence of looking into where what we are exposing ourselves to um, in order to inform our choices and our opinions. Um, because it is so easy to just let our opinions be formed for us by other people who are writing the headlines. I feel better getting that off my chest. I got to tell you. <laughs> I bet. I feel better. I think we both feel better. <laughs> right. I had to get. And so since you and I have known each other, one thing that really bothers me is because I know you and I know you're so much more than the Amanda Knox story or the Amanda Knox saga. Again, let me repeat. It bothers me that that's how it's labeled. Here recently in the news, there was a movie and I don't want to give the name of that movie that was loosely based on what happened over there that just kind of throws it out there. And I got to tell you, I was upset by it. Seems like you were upset by it. Didn't. Of course, you know about it. Tell us about that. Tell us about how you felt when you saw this take place. Yeah. So. First of all, when this film came out, um, I was no one had told me that my name was going to be in the headlines and people were going to be talking about my case in relation to this film that, as it's as they say, is a fictionalized version of that takes what happened to me as a sort of premise and inciting incident and then builds off of there its own storytelling, but treats my case and my identity as a device in its own storytelling. Um, you know, I wasn't I wasn't aware. I was never given any sort of special, uh, you know, headway or like knowledge that this was going to be happening. So first and foremost, I, I was exposed to it just like anybody else. And I thought, wow, um, yet again, people are taking what is clearly a story about me that has deep deep uh, reputational costs to me um, and they're just doing their own they're taking it and they're profiting off of it and they are telling it um, not for the sake of you know the truth or anything like that and not thinking about what sort of consequences their storytelling is going to have to the real human beings who are associated with it particularly me um, but also you know Meredith who is a character in this story as well. Um, they are not thinking about what the real life consequences are. And it, it, it sort of emphasized for me yet again, that for many people, I am more of an idea of a person than I am a real person that needs, you know, that common decency would, you know, dictate that you reach out to me and let me know that you're going to be exposing the world and therefore me to yet another iteration of the most traumatic experience of my life. But furthermore, that how you decide to depict me or this character loosely based on me is going to have reputational costs to me. And the thing that I found really frustrating was, you know, I can understand how that is overlooked, how my humanity again and again is overlooked, especially by people who are in a business where they're constantly consuming other people's stories and rehashing them and turning them into their own art and and putting their own spin on it. I get it. Like, I'm a storyteller. I understand that impulse. And if anything, I thought, 
hey, here's a really interesting opportunity to point out that there is a problem, that Hollywood has a problem with appropriating and exploiting other people's stories. And maybe this is a conversation we can start having. Maybe I can talk directly to the filmmakers who overlooked my humanity in this instance and say, hey, Maybe we should do things in a different way. Maybe we should be giving people authorship over their own stories. And what, you know, maybe a great, maybe that would be for the benefit of storytelling instead of just treating it like, obviously, I should have no say in how my story is treated. Um, maybe I can give you better insight into how this story could be told in an re- even better way. And I the response I got was, well, you haven't seen the film and oh, well, it's fictionalized. So no one would ever, you know, mistake you for the character in this film. And it's like, no, dude, first of all, you very, very, very thinly veiled fictionalized it. you turned Italy into France. You turned, you know, like, but what you did, like the premise that you took was this false, very, very prejudicial scandalous salacious version of me and that's who you depicted in your film you depicted the amanda knox character as someone who was directly involved in the death of her roommate who was sexually involved with her roommate and you used my name to promote your film oh my gosh do not even act like it's fictionalized you used my name to promote the film come on (laughs) so anyway that's a long long rambly way of saying that I think a lot of people in Hollywood um, are disingenuous. Um, I tried to be actually really, you know, compassionate and give them the benefit of the doubt. They were evasive towards me. And it's all because I think a lot of people who are in positions of power don't want to be held accountable and don't think that they should be. They feel a little bit entitled to other human beings. Um, And when they're called out on it, um, it, turns out that they don't, you know, take the olive branch that was offered um, and instead just plow ahead, maybe because they're just so used to it. I don't know. It's it's I'm disappointed in the response because I thought that I was building a bridge. And and, and speaking of the bridge, you would think, Amanda, that there have been lessons that have been learned. Let's go Princess Diana. Let's go Monica Lewinsky. Let's go Meghan Markle. These are women whose lives and stories have been used to boost ratings. People make money, increase profits and everything. So I'll ask you, I'm in the media. What does the media need to change? What do we need to do better? Mm. Well, I mean, you are an incredible journalist, G, and so you're doing everything fine. (laughs) I'm not going to give you pointers. Um, But what I will say is the thing that you're doing and the thing that I try to do in my own journalism is to approach stories, not from not from the assumption that you know what the story is before you've ever actually delved into it and talked to the people who are directly involved in it. Approach other people's stories and understand that they have way more at stake than you do in the telling of this story and that their perspective is actually matters. So it's not just using people as plot devices and as characters in a story that you want to tell, but understanding that what happens to a person is part of the story, but also 
what that person is doing to process and thinks about that experience that they're going through also is a very, very important part of the story. Um, And if you are going to be doing your due diligence as a journalist, you're going to understand that human beings are flawed, that sometimes they're going to be coming and making decisions uh, based upon not having a perfect um, understanding of all of the facts of a certain instance, but also just deeply empathize with the fact that there are very, very few people out there who are true psychopaths, which means that the vast majority of people, even when they're making mistakes and even when they're harming other people, are doing so from a place of ignorance or negligence or cognitive bias, prejudice. And those are things that are that complicate the human person. They aren't things that that make it easy to portray anyone in a black and white lens. And if you are portraying someone in a black and white lens, you are probably inevitably um, stripping them of their humanity. And that comes. Amanda, I had a buddy of mine who your name had came up and they were asking me like, well, what's she like? And I said, she's so much more than what you see in the tabloids. And you have a energy about you. And so, which makes me have to ask this. You spent nearly four years in that Italian prison over there. And after the third year of you being there, you're sentenced to 26 years in prison. This is before it was overturned. This is before you were exonerated. You spent three years and then all of a sudden you get 26 years. This is what I need from you. If you can take me back to the time that you got that 26 year prison sentence and you go back to your jail cell, And because this amazing person you are today, I got to think that there were a lot of tears during that time and there was a will probably to quit. Take us back to that time. What happened? Oh, gosh, gee, it's um, that. (sighs) So the greatest existential crisis of my life, um, because Basically, what happened when that verdict was handed to me, I didn't even hear 26 years at first. All I heard was guilty. And that was enough for me to realize that the truth didn't matter in the world, that my innocence didn't matter, and that everything I thought I could count on in in my life was gone. Like the, the very foundations of everything that I thought I could count on and believe on were gone. And I returned back to that prison cell thinking, is this life worth living? Is, is it? Is like genuine question. Let's like, let's just be honest. Is this life that I am facing worth living? And I asked myself that question again and again every day until I got out. Um, and you know, which isn't to say that, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily call that suicidal. Um, I would call that a kind of um, mindfulness where I suddenly realized that really what my life was, what I thought I could count on in life was not 
what I could count on. And ultimately all I could count on was myself and the people who loved me. And ultimately, if I was going to live my best life, I had to do it no matter what circumstances were given to me. So every day I woke up and I asked myself, is this life worth living? How can I make it worth living? Is it writing a letter to my mom today? Is it doing a bunch of sit-ups? Is it, um, is it just simply spending time having conversations with my younger self to get her through this? Um, these were all tactics that led to a very sort of singular mindfulness that was an attempt to make life worth living when it seemed like all of the things that I thought made life worth living, having a family, having friends, you know, having career, doing traveling, having pets, like all those things that you do that you think a life is all about. When those things are taken away, the only thing that you have left is your mind and you have to live with your mind and you have to live with that disappointment. And you have to ask yourself, is there a way of living this experience that is not just suffering, that is not just pain, that is actually a proactive um, self-realization despite limitations. Um, and it can be done. <laughs> it can be done, but it was really sad. I, I honestly, it was really sad. And I can't say that um, I, I was successful in the, in the sense that I could wake up not feeling sad every day. I was sad and I did grieve every day for this life that I shouldn't have had to live and that I was facing, you know, spending coming out of prison at like a 50 year old woman who is no longer able to have a family and to have a career and to do anything that I always wanted to do in life. Um, but I did try to take it day by day and make each day worth living. Um, and I think I did that. You said, you said that you woke up every day thinking about if this life's worth living. And obviously you continue to stay strong in that. But was there a time, because I've heard from people that have been locked up, that are locked up falsely, and we'll talk about your works with that in a second. I've heard from those that say, at some point, you have to change the mindset of, I hope I get out to, hey, this is going to be my reality. Was there a moment in which you said, okay, this is where I'm going to be for probably another 26 years? Oh, yeah. Uh, verdict day. As soon as that hit me, um, I was basically in shock all the way back to the prison. And then as soon as they put me back into a cell, I had this realization of, oh, I'm not just, you know, some lost tourist who is waiting to be allowed to go home. I'm a prisoner and prison is my home. And now I have to totally rethink my my relationship with the prison environment, my relationship with freedom, my relationship with my future. I have to reimagine everything from scratch, starting with this reality. So, yes, absolutely. And, you know, I had been in prison for a few years already at that point. Uh, it just took a long time for my verdict to, to get handed down. But leading up to that verdict, I always thought 
you know, this is just this in-between time. It's all a big mistake. Everything's going to be working out. I'm going to get to go back to my life. This life that I'm living is not really my life. It's just this in-between space. And then I realized, oh no, this is my life. This prison is my life. And if that is true, how do I envision myself in this place? How do I, you know, how, what kind of legacy can I leave if the only space that I'm allowed to fulfill my potential is this cell? You've done and continue to do a lot of work for those that are wrongfully convicted. And as a matter of fact, it is believed that a lot of, there's half of the people that are in prison today that are wrongfully convicted, half of those are caused by government misconduct, okay? Um, Talk about what it means to you to help out and do your best to be a voice for those wrongfully convicted. Well, I guess the best way to describe it is for a long time, I thought that I was alone, um, or at the very least, I felt like I didn't, no one around me could relate to my experience. Um, I felt like what happened to me in my interrogation was all my fault. I felt like all of this experience was all my fault that somehow I, you know, somehow my Italian wasn't good enough. And so the police didn't understand me. And so that's why they didn't believe me and everything. And so I blamed myself in a lot of ways for what happened to me. Um, And it wasn't until I, came into contact with other wrongfully convicted people that I really suddenly realized, oh my gosh, I am just one person in this huge, huge issue, this huge problem that is impacting way more people than we think. And the first time I came into contact with that was when I went to the Innocence Network conference, um, which is a conference of all of these different projects throughout the United States they come together once a year and they invite wrongfully convicted people that they've helped freed um, to come and meet other wrongfully convicted people because, you know, we don't just hang out with each other like friends, the, you know, the, the TV show. It's we we need help finding each other. And when I walked into that room full of hundreds of other people who have been wrongly convicted, mostly men, mostly men of color, um, I was scared because I didn't really know what to expect. And the first thing that happened was two of these men immediately rushed up to me and they said, you don't have to explain a thing, little sister. We know. And it just, it, it, it took so much weight off of my shoulders to know that I was a part of this broader family of people who had survived what, is just this extreme horrific experience. And we all understood each other. And we all understood that these things happen not because they're not our fault. They're the fault of the people who had agency, who had power, who decide, who, who, who abused their power and who exercised these terrible, terrible techniques in law enforcement to put innocent people away. And it was um, it was a completely eye opening experience for me. And it also really, really showed me that the way I grew up, I never really had to think about the criminal justice system. It was not something that was on my radar at all. And so 
to be exposed not only to the criminal justice system, but to the errors of the criminal justice system. It made me think my role in this is to be a bridge builder, to reach out to people who, like me, had no idea and to show them, actually, this can happen and it can happen to you. And we are all implicated in it because we rely on a criminal justice system that is flawed to solve really, really complex problems in society and innocent people get churned through the system and we don't save them often enough. One of my favorite things about you is that you, you speak, you talk with purpose and this podcast is called Leaving a Legacy and it's a question that's asked of all of our guests. So it's your time now. You're a wife, you're a mom-to-be, What do you want your legacy to be? Mm. I want my legacy to not be the murder girl legacy that um, so often it feels like there's no way that I can ever do anything that will um, that will define me more than this thing that I didn't do. I do want to be a bridge builder and someone who inspires change that is something that would mean a lot to me if I could succeed at that. And I'm working so hard. Um, But to be someone who raises up the voices of those who have been overlooked and who who builds bridges to affect meaningful change, that is something that I am really, really passionate about and I hope is my legacy. Amanda Knox, it's been real, my friend. I'm grateful for your presence. Thank you. I'm grateful for you, G, and I'm so excited about your podcast. Thank you so much for having me. All right, for sure. Tell Chris I said hello. Okay, will do. (laughs) All right, take care. Talk soon. All right, bye.